You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Welcome to my show. Grab a seat, grab a beer, grab a sandwich. Let's hang out. Um, so today uh, I'm excited because I wanted to have one of our uh, sponsors on the show. Um, and it, he's an interesting character. Uh, he is the uh, founder and president of Vitafair. So you've heard me reading about Vitafair on our ad reads. And uh, I wanted to get him on the show because he's got such an interesting backstory, uh, how he comes up in the business. And then I wanted you guys to sort of feel uh, the connection to why he started Vitafair and what Vitafair is really about. Um, and it's a great episode uh, and I can't wait to get into it. But before we do, uh, I just wanted to take a second. Uh, it's been a tough year uh, for losses um, in the industry and in the movie industry and in general uh, with COVID and everything else that's been going on. Um, and it seems like every week uh, we're hearing about uh, a favorite comedian that is passing away or, uh, you know, actors that are passing away. And uh, this week uh, sucks um, because uh, just found out, I'm recording this on the 14th, uh, just found out this morning that uh, Ivan Reitman died, which uh, is a huge, huge loss, A, to filmmaking and storytelling, um, but just like a, a personal bummer, man. Like he's always been a hero of mine as far as directing is concerned and even producing. Uh, his movies shaped my childhood. His movies uh, were babysitters for so many of us growing up. Uh, like you guys obviously were obsessed with his hits, right? Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2. Uh, he helped produce uh, his son's version of the movie, Ghostbusters After Afterlife. Uh, I've been talking about Jason's film for most of this year. I've had the cinematographer on and production designer on. And, um, and everybody that had worked on that set uh, talked about Ivan as such a wonderful giving person. Um, and, uh, it's just a bum out. Cause I was, you know, selfishly, I was going to attempt to try to get him on the podcast and go through that process because I'm just so inspired by his work. Um, and, uh, luckily if you guys listen to the show, you know, I listen to the show. I'm a big fan of Mark Maron's podcast. He just uh, put out an old, uh, interview that he did with Ivan, I think it was back in 2016 or something. Um, that's really good. Uh, go check it out. It was released today um, on Mark Merritt. So it's the uh, WTF podcast. It's a really great interview that talks about where Ivan comes from and, um, you know, his family sort of like uh, retreating to this country and then uh, his ins, the way he got in with, uh, some of the some of the most iconic comedians, uh, you know, John Belushi and Bill Murray and uh, Harold Ramis, who was another loss that we had. Um, they're just such an influential group of folks. And uh, what I found interesting about the interview with Mark was uh, his history uh, and the people that he worked with early on, Ivan Reitman, who uh, was producing stuff and uh, plays and and live performance stuff, and then, uh, you know, producing for like David Cronenberg. The connections are so wild. Uh, a lot of Canadians that were all coming together. Fascinating 
group of people. Really great fucking interview. Um, and uh, it sucks that he's gone. And it, like, you really, like, I, I want to go through his catalog this week. Um, I didn't get to see his last movie, which I'm excited about watching. I, I, I didn't even realize it came out. And we live in such a time period where, like, it's either on or off. You don't know, uh, you know, if a movie comes out, if it doesn't have the same kind of marketing. Um, but he did a movie um, called Draft Day, which I'm excited about watching. And this was, I think this was like 2014. Um, and supposedly, because I was listening to this interview and they were talking about all sorts of new techniques and stuff they used for it. And that's what I find fascinating about Reitman as a director. He came up starting doing comedy stuff you know, Ghostbuster Stripes. Uh, he helped put together uh, Animal House. Um, he had a fascinating story about uh, wanting to direct Animal House and, and uh, uh, he didn't end up getting it, but, uh, and was happy that he didn't because he thought that the uh, director that did it uh, brought it to a better place. The director of the original uh, American Werewolf in London, by the way. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, man. Yeah, it's just kind of a bummer. Uh, I was excited to see uh, his influence and him working with his son in uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife because that new version of Ghostbusters felt the closest to uh, the originals after all the other stuff that was going around. Um, and I, I loved that. I, what I loved about the original Ghostbusters was that sort of blue collar mentality and putting things together and you know, getting your friends together and, and putting together a business and from the ground up kind of thing. And when you hear Ivan's story about how, uh, you know, he made his his directing career work and how he became uh, essentially a distributor for movies and he was doing all sorts of behind the scenes stuff that put him in the right place to become a director. Um, and that's what we talk about on the show a lot is like the weird, odd paths that folks take um, to find success. It's a, I, I'm advertising someone else's show, but I think it's such a great listen. Uh, like I said, go listen to Mark Marin's podcast um, and check that out. I was listening to it while riding the bike today and it was, it was pretty fucking heartfelt. It probably, you know, it's pretty intense, but anyway, uh, not to, uh, not to bring the show down, just, uh, you know, take some time this week, go back and watch some of his stuff. Like uh, Stripes is amazing movie. Uh, Evolution was like a weird, great movie. He did Junior, which was great. Twins. Um, so many movies. Kindergarten Cop. You know, a lot of really great hits. Um, so really cool show. So anyway, today's episode, uh, I'm excited. Like I said, we have uh, the founder of Vitafair, Bob Bowden, is on the show. And uh, we get into his history. We get into his early days as a broadcaster. We get into his early days as a host for shows. He's worked for The Onion. He was a lead TV anchor for Bloomberg's World Financial Report. He's done a bit of everything. And <laughs> there's a piece of me that like, you know, I don't get nervous often, but I'm like, okay, so I got a broadcaster coming on the show. So he's going to have that broadcast voice. The two of us are going to go back and forth. It's, it's fascinating to listen to when you, when you listen to this episode, the difference between someone that has the training to get in front of a microphone and then the, this guy here who uhs and ums his way <laughs> through the content that you guys listen to. 
Uh, but it's a great episode. And uh, one of the things that we tackle on today's show is trying to help you as the filmmaker, as the content creator, to find the confidence to charge for your work. Uh, there's something about us artists that are very allergic, can be very allergic to the business side of filmmaking, the business side of art, where you start to mention money and you're just, I don't know, is it the imposter syndrome that, that, that beats you guys up? You know, is it feeling like insecure about your work? Like, ah, can I charge for this? Do I deserve to charge for this? Like, why would someone pay for this? That insecurity, right? How many of you felt that? How many of you felt that this week? Okay. Ah, but And then when you're dealing with your finances, right? Maybe you got your taxes done and you're looking at what you did for the end of the year and you're like, how do I make a fucking living at this? Like, how do I survive doing this business? Well, if you can't find the confidence to charge for your work, if you don't think your work is worth money, then how are you ever going to convince somebody to produce your work? How are you ever going to convince somebody else to finance your stuff? Uh, why not prove a track record of that, right? Charge for your work. And go through the process of building your audience. Because at the end of the day, it is our audience. It is the people that follow us. It is the people that support us. It's the people that comment every time you post something. They are your power in this business, whether you're talking music, whether you're talking movies, if you're a photographer, they are your power. And so you need to build your audience. You need to care for your audience. Um, and if you can do so, if you can prove that you have an audience that is willing to support you, willing to pay for things, then you can go on to do bigger and better things. You can convince actors to work for you. You can convince larger production companies uh, to work with you. Um, you really have to prove that track record. And in a, in a time period where follows were purchased, right? And you'd be surprised who purchases their followers. Like you would be surprised at the giant celebrities that suddenly put, like put out an account and it has like, you know, 3 million followers, right? Where did they all come from? You would be surprised. Um, but it's hard. It's hard to actually build an audience. It's hard to put together folks that care. Uh, you guys see the level of work that I do on it. Those of you who follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or follow the podcast on Instagram and level the process POD. I think I'm finally out of like posting jail with Instagram. I don't know. They keep fucking me on that. But um, you see like, and you guys, if you're followers, you know that I'm in interacting with you guys consistently, constantly. And I follow people that I find interesting. I may follow you. I've had a lot of folks go, uh, why did you follow me? I follow you because I think you might like what I'm going to be doing. And I'm fascinated with what it is that you do. And if I follow you out of nowhere and you accept that stuff and you write to me, I genuinely find the time to write back to you. I care, right? I got to let you know I exist, but I care. That's the only way we can do it. If you play by the rules, if you sit around and you wait for these social media accounts to just bring you traffic, it just doesn't fucking happen, man. It just doesn't. Even if you pay to have traffic brought to you, it doesn't happen, right? So your work brings in traffic, who you work with brings in traffic, who you put in front of your camera put, brings in traffic. And then it's about, it's up to you 
what you do with that audience. It's up to you with how you interact with them. It's up to you with uh, how you teach them what you're worth through what it is that you make and through how much you charge for that stuff, right? It's no accident that I don't just put my films up on YouTube, okay? So it's in, it's intentional. So uh, what I'm going to try to do with today's episode is uh, give you the tools, try to give you the confidence uh, to be able to monetize your work, okay? That may actually be the, the title of the show as we talk about this. Um, give you, I'm writing this down, give you the confidence to monetize, it's going to be a long one, your work. I think that's the title. You guys are real time hearing me do the work for the show. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? Um, so I, I'm excited. Me and Bob talk about it all. We get into it. He explains uh, in the best way, explains exactly what Vitafair is about, what you can expect when you work or if you uh, use Vitafair. Uh, we talk about Vitafair's new film festival that's coming out. We get into the pros and cons of film festivals, especially for short film directors and small format content directors out there. Um, and I also talk a bit about distribution. On the back end, I uh, let out some info, and I think I'm okay for it, but I let out some info on how much uh, I have been a part of for docs that have been distributed through major networks. We talk about that kind of stuff. I think you guys are going to find this episode interesting. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. Let's talk it up with Bob uh, and his dog. His dog is also a, uh, a surprise guest on the show. So strap yourselves in, grab a beer, get those noise-canceling headphones going, crank them up to 11, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Thanks for being on the show. How are you, bud? Mike, I'm doing great. I have an idea for you. Mm -hmm. So I want to. I want you to create T-shirts that say "I'm in love with the in love with the podcast 
uh, a t-shirt. Like I, I'm, I'm, you, you got it. Yeah, yeah. In love with squared, I think should be a, a t-shirt of some kind. <laughs> this is a good way to start. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I'm. Uh, I don't want to say that I'm threatened as a broadcaster because you have broadcaster voice. This is like, you know, the man. Well, now you're, you're daring me to speak uh, in my, <laughs> good evening. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Right. Right. I'm just some schlub that picked up a microphone and went, I, I'm allowed to talk to people. You've, you've been through the training, you know, you've done oh, the training. Yeah. Because, because in 2022, the train, yeah. You know, like I'm not, I'm not sure uh, Joe Rogan has had a lot of broadcasters. I mean, yeah, he did some shows, but I don't think he was a, you know, yeah. We could, you know, too bad. He just can't be successful without that training. Um, well, I'm excited to have you on. I want to get into, uh, your history, your past. I want to talk about Vitifair. I want to talk about all this stuff. Um, and uh, thanks for being here, dude. You're welcome. Um, My pleasure. Where are you at? You're East Coast, right? That's what we talked about offline, right? You're East well, Coast. at the moment I am. I, you know, I'm, I'm in New Jersey as we speake uh, but I'm also kind of half my foot into, I just bought a place in Austin. So oh, right. I'm trying to follow the trends, you know, it's kind of, it's cool now to do what the cool kids do. And right. You gotta, you gotta drive, <laughs> drive down that fucking Joe Rogan highway down to, uh, to Austin. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, how long, have, I mean, you know, I've been in New Jersey all this time, so it's not exactly <laughs> like I've been cool up till now. So I might as well try it. Yeah. 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 That's cool, man. Uh, well, yeah. I, Austin's great. I mean, I've been to Austin a few times. I'm curious to see how it plays plays now as far as uh it seems to be the place that all of the wealthy Californians that don't want to pay taxes are bailing to so it'll be interesting unlike Florida which is the place the wealthy New York and New Jersey people go who don't want to pay taxes <laughs> yeah, yeah they yeah, each yeah. have their own yeah yeah it's it's a wild place. spot but i mean it's it's a cool place and uh the film industry is huge there you know and uh, prior to Rogan everybody forgets that that's where Robert Rodriguez set up shop and he's been doing studio stuff there for years and years. Well, sure. Well, yeah. sure. You're dating yourself, but yes, I, I'm dating myself by understanding the reference. <laughs> I, I yeah. can't believe that me referencing Robert Rodriguez is a dating thing. I still, I still believe that he's like that young independent filmmaker, which is completely well beyond that at this point <laughs> in the stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I remember reading his book when I was in film school. What was it? Rebel Without a Crew. And, and uh, he's always been a pretty amazing inspiration as far as, uh, independent filmmakers are concerned and then working for studios and being incredibly fucking successful. The spy kids movies are what made him huge, you know? So pretty cool. Anyway, sure. <laughs> anyway, that's why you came on the show. Is I, I, well, I, I, what I remember most is that, that first <laughs> film he had where I think he shot it in Mexico. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, not to Desperado, the one before Desperado. Oh God. Right. El Mariachi. That's what it was. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. it. And I remember thinking like, wow, I bet, I bet it's that's just like a hack, like getting, you know, Mexicans who don't didn't grow up speaking English are like, they probably seem like better actors because they're speaking in Spanish and we don't (laughs) know, you know, like it's like an acting hack. Yes, 100 percent. Dude, I use the same hack with my movie, the, the 12 cam, where I shot the entire film in Russian. Uh, and part of my reason for that was that I was concerned when I was putting it together that I wouldn't get access to great actors. And so I figured that most Americans would just be like, wow, these Russian actors are legitimate. <laughs> and it you turns out that I'm from Rodriguez. You actually weren't kidding. You actually have, you read the book and you, yes, <laughs> yes. I'm buying it. Yeah. It turns out I got really great actors, really solid talent, uh, from Russia because 
Uh, most Russian actors usually just cat, get cast as like the car driver or the mafioso. And these guys were super excited to jump on something that was cool. But I, you know, I can't take full credit for that. That was an accidental thing. I ultimately was doing it because I just assumed <laughs> that the audience would be like, wow, these Russian actors are fantastic. <laughs> it, it worked on me as an audience <laughs> member. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about, before we get into Vitifair, let's talk about a bit of your history. So how'd you, cause you've had a career in broadcasting for a, a while now. How'd you, how'd you get started in that? Oh, uh, well, let's see. I was bored as at my job in AT&T as a sales guy. I was working in the World Trade Center, by the way. Those historians remember there were two buildings. Uh, I was in the 72nd floor, the World Trade Center. Uh, wow. But wow. before nine, but not on 9-11. Right. Uh, and I was bored in my job. Maybe this saved my life. I was bored in my job and said, uh, gee, what can I do? I just, I know, so I, I interviewed at a few banks and like that di I didn't go well. I got no job offers. And it was like, maybe I'll just go to film school. <laughs> and I already had a master's, so I didn't want to get another master's. So I just got a film certificate at NYU, but it gave me something tangible to do. Like when you tell your friends, you're throwing your career away to do something new and different. Uh, you know, you need something tangible to say you're doing, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, a certificate, if, right. Like, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> right, right. It's just, a, it feels better. Like it is actually, it's, it's like that substantively necessarily that much different, but you just have something to say. I'm yeah, instead of, I'm just going to find myself and wander around and drink, you know, you get to say, Oh, I'm going to film school. And they go, Oh, well that's, that's a thing. Okay. You know, good luck making money in that. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's anyway, kind of so that's kind what of, I did. Yeah, kind of the same boat for me when I went to New York Film Academy. It was like, oh, I need to sort of like solidify this, and then quickly while I was there, I'm like, oh, Jesus, don't spend any more money on this. Get out of here and go go to work. And that's kind of what I yes, that's how I started yes. too. Um, <clears throat> so then, where'd you go from there? Well, so then I started. Uh, well, I to, to get my first, you know, actually, I had a, a one month. People used to do it. I don't know if they, I guess COVID stopped, but there was a thing called Eurail. You buy a ticket in Europe. It's a good for every country's train system. And you can wander around and, you know, oh, yeah. I'll go to Paris today. I'll go to Barcelona today. And you just take these trains. And uh, so I got a one-month Eurail, and I'm just going around. And I, and through pure random coincidence, I happened upon Cannes <laughs> during the Cannes Film Festival. Wow. And okay. I had just, yeah, I know. I really hadn't planned it, but I was like, oh, okay, so gee, I finished this film program. Let me go up to somebody. One of these, you know, I got all these tables, promotions, desks and stuff. And I'm, let me go up and say, hey, you got, you know anybody with a job in New York? And they're like, uh, no, kid, no, get away. I'm like, oh, well, that's not very, okay, I guess. And I walk up, I'm like, let me try this other table. I'm like, do you know uh, anyone with a job in New York? They're like, no. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So then I'm like, it became a game for me. Yeah, I like yeah. went up to the next table. No, the next table. No, the next table. No, 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 no. It became like, oh, this is just kind of like, funny or something it was like sort of a an absurdist uh reality show in my own head uh -huh. and then I, I walk up to a lady do you know anyone in new york with a job she goes oh yeah i know someone i'm like what <laughs> so <laughs> so uh so then she wrote down this name and i like shoved it in my backpack and a little piece of paper and then a month later i'm back in new york and i'm pulling out this you know scribbled piece of paper and i'm like okay let me call this person up. So it turned out that was at New Line Cinema. Oh, wow. And it le led me to an interview, and I got the job, and it was a job as a location scout for oh. a, a new film called Hanging with the Homeboys. 
<laughs> in a decade, decade called the 90s. So hold on. So had you, you had never done any sort of location scouting stuff. So what was this like? Well, I was, an, uh, uh, you know, there was a kind of a head of location department. And so I was one of the three location scouts who were actually going around taking photos. They basically said, look, here's the kind of places we need for this movie. You know, we, we need uh, two apartments. We need a supermarket scene. We have a scene in a bar. We have a, you know, et cetera. And so when you go to these places, um, you know, well, for the apartments, they had us posting, you know, eight and a half by 11 flyers on on like telephone poles, like mm. taping them up saying, hey, we, we'll rent your apartment for $200 a day. You know, just call this number. And I, I'm just going around. And by the way, this is all in the South Bronx and, and Harlem where the whole movie was shot. Oh, wow. And so, uh, and this is back in the early 90s. It's pretty rough, I'm mm-hmm. telling you. But anyway, it was still a really interesting experience that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get for anything. But uh, so mostly then if we get calls, like we then go into... We would just shoot photographs of the location, you know, with our film camera back at the time, the day out of it developed, you know, film mm-hmm. cameras. And we would come back and then show the director. We would show, you know, and, and on the other people who were, you know, were in the, in the management of the production and say, like, Here, here's this bar. You know, we take these kind of panoramic shots like, you know, you take a photo and you turn the camera you know, sure. 30 degrees, take another photo. And so, uh, you know, then you tape the photos together. And you're like, oh, look, this is the supermarket. This could be the supermarket scene. And you show them. So then that, that was basically the job. It was, it was wandering around looking for, looking for places that seemed to match the description and the mood that we knew each scene was intended to convey. Yeah. And then we would take pictures of the location. So it wasn't you, that hard, but it was, it was fun. You must have met some really wild characters through that whole process. Oh, it was it was uh, well. The 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 weirdest part of it, Mike, is it is the whole when the actual filming started, the whole movie was took place at over one night. Hmm. So all of the shooting was done at night, an entire nighttime schedule. So there were times, you know, I was when you, then then you, you're no longer a location scout; you're a location assistant. Right. And you're helping to, you know, prepare the locations for the next day shoot, for example. You put it all at, all at night and also manage the location for the current shooting going on that night. And there are times that it'd be, it'd be like four in the morning and I'd be like alone in an alleyway walking through the South Bronx, you know. And, and so I had all kinds of strange experiences, you know, of, <laughs> of, uh, of people coming to say and a lot of, and most of them very positive people coming up being really nice to me, like, uh, yeah, yeah. saying like, we're, we're going to, you know, look, you, you, you've got a walkie talkie and, you know, and we saw you running earlier. Cause I was, you know, I was trying to run around and they're like, and you know, and you're white, someone's going to shoot you. Let me walk with you. <laughs> you know, like I, I got embraced by a lot of the locals who were being, you know, nice to us. Because they knew that we were, you know, nice people too. Yeah. But, uh, so it was, it was a super interesting and 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 you know, interesting. It was a, a, an experience I haven't talked about in probably ten or fifteen years. But <laughs> there it is. Well, it's fascinating. Back when I went to school in New York, I used to do um, short films and stuff out there. And I remember shooting in that city. And I remember how wild the people were there. And there was this one occasion where, uh, while we were shooting a film, this guy. As soon as we called action, he would hang out his window and he'd start screaming. 
And then we'd start, we'd, <laughs> we'd call just cut. For, yeah. for no, for no, reason. no value to him whatsoever. And, and, no, and, just and, and so then we were just trolling. like, what's your deal? And he goes, how much are you going to pay me not to do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. he, had a, he did have a business model turned out. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a wild place. But I mean, New York is one of the most interesting places to shoot in because most people just don't give a shit. And so like, I remember doing a shot in like this really busy street and I had a 16 millimeter camera and I was handheld, it was handheld because I didn't have a permit. And I'm just shooting down the street and these people are walking towards camera and they don't care. They don't, they don't, they don't look in the lens. They just walk right the fuck by. It was wild. Right. It's a really wild place yeah. to shoot. Um, but anyway, yeah. anyway, that's cool, man. So then, uh, so you did location stuff for a while and then you decided that, uh, that wasn't going to be your career. Where'd you go next? Well, so I, I it, it became clear to me that that it wasn't for me that sort of next movie after next movie after next movie life where you're always hustling for the next gig and any gig is going to be this many months and then you'll be unemployed again. Yeah. And so I had a friend who was working in television. And I ended up getting a job uh, on a TV talk show, but kind of a talk, sort of a low budget version of the Tonight Show. It was in New York. It's called New York at Night. It was actually shot in New Jersey at the WWR uh, Channel 9 station, mm -hmm. uh, famously that had Howard Stern at the same time. Oh, right. Um, but it was a show. Yeah, it was kind of like, so they had a band and a host and a live audience. It was sort of a, uh, you know, it was on a super station, which meant, you know, you were in the New York City market and then a couple other random places of, you know, uh, where people had those giants, giant dishes back in the day, they could kind of, you know, get the <laughs> signal. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so, but it was, yeah. So then I started working in TV and I, uh, then the next job I got on camera then at the next job, which was at a news network hired by the same executive producer I'd worked with on the talk show. And so I ended up kind of doing TV for a bunch of years then as a uh, host and eventually an anchor reporter doing news, but yeah, in between yeah. I also did the Onion News Network and stuff like that. So yeah. a lot of a lot of TV and, and video after that that were not film related. It's crazy the the because I was looking up your career and your career path and I'm like, wow, this guy's done a lot of everything. Had what um, did you get trained to be an on on air host or or did you have to go through a process for that or did they just go? <laughs> I like your voice, guy. Get on here. <laughs> How did you? Uh, get <laughs> Well, the very if you mean the very first on-camera job, which believe me, I was very stiff and I was I didn't do any I didn't have a meltdown, but I was absolutely I mean, you know, for the first year, I would say I'm just acting like it was just the one night. I'd say for the first year I was very stiff on camera generally. But um but uh no, in, in that particular job, they had this they had this new thing called the internet. Mm -hmm. And they had, oh, we got these talk shows that we want to do too about like new, th those were news talk shows now. I'd left the entertainment talk show. And they're like, wouldn't it be great if we had a guy to pull up information on the internet pertinent, pertinent to the discussion that's going on <laughs> about the news issue? Mm -hmm. So if they're debating some issue, you pull up a quote that the same guest said, you know, five years ago or someone attacked him three years ago and that's quoted or there's a statistic that was just in USA Today and there's the graph. So they're like, we need a guy who's a who can work computers but also do <laughs> public speaking. And at that point, I'd already been doing the audience warm-ups for that talk show when I was just a producer, but it was, that was the sort of entertainment talk show. I was just a, I wasn't on the air, but I was doing the audience warmups. And so this producer goes, oh, well, this, this guy, Bob, he does the audience warmups. He also has an, you know, two engineering degrees, <laughs> you know, like he built our <laughs> database for the guests in the last job. Like, huh. So he knows computers and he also does these warmups. 
He'd be a guy who could sit on the air and pull up internet stuff pertinent to a news conversation. <laughs> so how about him? And so that's how I got it. Wild, man. I, I just imagine that there's like, they open the door to a room of any, like the, the type of rooms that you see in any old uh, Michael Bay movie from the early 90s with like computer monitors everywhere. And it's like, <laughs> you have to sit in like into this jet like pilot seat and you're just sitting there like surfing the internet at the same time as the show is on. That's, that's, he, sounds like you, you watched the show. <laughs> that's pretty close. I mean, yeah, we had, basically they had this wall. It was, it was an old school version of a video wall, but it, without flat screen. So it was like, it was like tube TVs, but like six of them all smushed together with this <laughs> sort of piece of plain, painted plywood over the front of them so you could just see the screen part. But they were like curved tube screens, and that was our our set for that, yeah. Yeah, early in my career, I did a little bit of broadcast stuff when, when I was younger, and it's a different world. It's wild. It's like... Uh it's very, it used to be back in the day, because this was when I was doing it, it was like uh, like early 2000s, late 90s. And it was very techy, very technical, a lot of like, uh, um, like very expensive, like the gear was incredibly expensive back then. I remember when everything did the initial jump to HD, and there was like that mm. pre-jump that happened to HD where all the networks suddenly had to become HD compatible and all the production houses had to become HD compatible. And it was like sure. the early version of it. And that put a lot of people out of business because they sunk a ton of money into like this early version of equipment and gear and monitors and all that stuff. And then it changed again. I remember that was right. a big thing back then. It was crazy. Oh yeah, no. That, and that was a chicken and egg thing too, where people were like, yeah, but they don't, how many people actually have these HD TVs yeah. or, you know, yeah. whatever. So yeah, it was, uh, yeah, no, I know exactly the, the the time you made. But what kind of TV did you do? What kind of? It was broadcast? like local access. I, I wasn't on it. I was just uh, in the behind the scenes, either directing or like my first job in the business. I ran a local a local access TV station, um, and so like I would go out and direct uh, multicam shoots. I would uh, do multicam shoots in the station, put the uh, the uh, broadcasting or the uh, the lineup together, and do all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so it was very early on, and it was a. I don't know how I got that. I stumbled into that gig. It was a weird stumble into that gig, and I did that for about a year. Saved up all the money that I made, and then I went to film school with the cash because I knew I wasn't going to be a broadcaster. I really wanted to make movies, and it was two completely different things. But the the gig gave me access to like cameras every day and i had access sure. to like sound recording booths and i learned how to like sync multiple cameras and color process multiple cameras and um and it weirdly years and years later when i started to do uh music stuff and live music events and all that then those skills came back and and oh, I, I love the gear. To this day, I love the gear. Yes, yeah, and I do photography as a hobby too. And I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many like lens reviews I sit and watch on YouTube all day long. It's, uh, <laughs> I think the gear is great. Plus, you were you were doing cable like were there like some cool care like some Wayne's World kind of crazy characters there? I would think that could be kind of fun. It was fun. There was a lot of like fun stuff, and it was. You know, a lot of it the because it, it was a community access station that was on the Cape, and it ran through. Uh, like the high school system. So I was dealing with like a lot of high school games and then a lot of like young kids that were coming in to do shows and do stuff. And then we would uh, film like uh, live uh, theater productions and then broadcast those. So it was interesting. I got to work with lighting technicians that <clears throat> did, you know, theater shows and those were beautiful to look at. And, and then I had to like try to figure out how do I capture this the same way that people see it in the audience. And these were old school video cameras. So it was 
It wasn't, you know, 24p. It wasn't any of that shit. It was basically, how do I make this stuff not look like, that was my skill. My my skill at the time was I could make this stuff not look like a basketball game. You know what I mean? Because the cameras right, were right. pretty much the same. No, I, I wouldn't be worried. Yeah, I, I, please. I, some of those are some of my fondest memories. Some of those kind of, because they're wildly creative. I, yeah, yeah. In yeah. fact, I did, I actually did a, I actually did a cable access. Now that I, now you're reminding me, but before I had my first on-air gig, I did a comedy cable access thing. No, no kidding. Which was, yeah, which was, uh, which was, what actually got me an audition for the TV show Extra you know, because the producer <laughs> that I knew thought it was funny. And so that was part of it too. Like, so yeah, that stuff is, could be so much fun. Yeah. It's wild. And, and it's, it was more ready, readily available on the East coast than filmmaking was like, so it, it's, it was tougher to get into uh, a film thing at that time period uh, over there, because really, unless you were in New York and even New York's film stuff was, you know, pretty pretty like niched like you're either going to end up on like a law and order or like one of those tv shows or something like that it really wasn't like a filmmaking thing you ha really had to be on the west coast for it so it was like a weird hack and like a backwards hack where i'm like well i get my hands on cameras i can learn gear i can learn all this kind of stuff and yeah uh, um, well it's a, it it's wild. a very small club that new it's been you know decades since i was in it but that that new york city film production club that goes from film to film because everyone uses this yeah. You know, this lighting guy and everyone uses, you know, knows these location people and everyone it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, pretty insular, you know? Yeah. It's wild, man. And that's the skills that I learned through that were fascinating manager, like many, like the management skills that I learned from it, but also, uh, that also transitioned in like corporate world and corporate videos and all that. And so then you start to really figure out how to like communicate with clients. You really, you, you learn a lot of the business aspect of, of filmmaking through it. So. It's. Sure. I know a lot of the people listening to the show are always fascinated with this. Like, how do how do you get into the business? And and we talk about this all the time. There is no fucking path. You know, there is no path path to go through. And so, it's always weird to hear how people are like. I used to label videotapes. Now I'm directing. You know what I mean? It's, it's this weird, <laughs> well, weird transition. The one tip I give people that helped me a lot was whenever I would get some little. Bullshit job. I hope I can say bullshit on sure. your show. Of course. I would get some little, just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to break into show business. It would be like, uh, that would, show business would be defined as like selling beer at the Central Park Concert Series. You know, like, well, it's a concert series. This is a, you know, it's a show business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so they're like, okay, gets good. How much for the Budweiser? Um, and so, but anytime I would get any of the, the smallest, most, you know, meager jobs, I would immediately try to, get my other struggling friends in to that same meager bullshit job. Oh, yeah. And what happened is I ended up, one of those friends ended up being so much better connected, got me so much better gigs than I ever got her. <laughs> yeah. But we were both just struggling at the same time. I and mean, I was, because I just had, was you know, like trying to help her and like made it clear I was trying to help her. She ended up helping me a hundred times more over. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's why I tell everyone. If you get any kind of job, call everybody you know who's also struggling and try to get them in there even for like a day. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, it, it, beyond the point, I'm sure you weren't doing it selfishly at that time. I'm sure you're just like, look, I know you need a gig. Come and hang out. And what ends up happening in this business is you never know who's going to crack, who's going to get through it, like what sort of life situation that someone finds them in, themselves in where suddenly they have the opportunity to do something larger. And so uh, you just got to be nice to everybody, really. And don't, right. don't be a piece right. of shit. And you know, I, I know that our industry 
gets a lot of uh, press, especially lately, for all the pieces of crap that kind of work in this business. But there's a lot of really great people that work in this business, too, that really care about you and really want to see you succeed, especially if you're genuine. Um, but you also have to work on your radar. You also have to, like, make sure that you're in tune with like yeah, and in full disclosure, are. look, I burned some bridges myself. Also, I'm just I, I don't want to present myself as if I was some sort of uh, angel, you know. Like <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I made some. I was young. I made some mistakes too, and you know, probably didn't pick my battles all the time, and got in some unnecessary, you know, fights with people. But uh, and it, I did enough of the other stuff, I think, to compensate. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. you go. There you go, man. Um, well, cool. So let's talk about Vitafair. How'd you like? How did Vitafair start? Like, where did this come from? Well, so um, I, so I, I with my, my TV career led up to I was uh, my last job was on, I was on Bloomberg Television for six years, and I, I, you know, was bored again. This seems to be a recurring theme in my life. I did, you know, <laughs> but I was I was you know doing every once in a while. Like I interviewed Donald Trump on live television, but that was in two thousand five. You know, long before he was a politician. <laughs> I interviewed Martha Stewart and a few couple of these kind of and a lot, but it's mostly just kind of CEOs or fund managers stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, it, my dog is, by the way, crying in the background. I'm wondering if people are thinking there's uh, some, some some sort of a child uh, who's in distress. No. Anyway, that's uh, that's Mo. That's, okay, uh, but uh, so uh, I I quit my job. You know, I was doing stories like uh, this was like literally thing. Like every you know every quarter it's earnings season. Uh, Bob, your your story today is the Alcoa earnings report. Like that would be my story for the day uh -huh. at Bloomberg. The following day would be like semiconductor chip sales forecast for the next quarter. Oh my God. Like, okay, that's my story for the day. Like, you know, what started out as entertainment television and with a band, you know, like, ended up being the Alcoa aluminum earnings report. Uh, so I'm like, I need to do something else. So I quit my job and I made, I made a, a documentary film about corruption in public education. Oh, okay. It was called The Cartel and it did really well. So that basically, it did, ended up getting like an 11 city theatrical release, uh, nice. uh, Warner brothers distribution. Um, wow. Okay. You know, stuff like that, like a, a dozen film festival awards, but not the big festivals. I was never in, you know, the Sundances and the, and the Tribeca's and the, sure. And the cans, but I was in medium size, you know, ones. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so the success of, so what that did is that sent me to film festivals where I was, I would see all these, you know, people, some of whom had great work, and the and then you know they'd spent sometimes half of their life savings, sometimes years of their lives. Mm -hmm. They make this film. They care about it so deeply. Sometimes they're really good. Sometimes they're even just charming. And and they and they and it screens once at a local film festival, and then just disappears and it goes away. And they invite all their friends, and they have one night, and then it's over. Yeah. Because if you're not in this, you know, one tenth of one percent or one one hundredth of one percent who gets some sort of distribution deal. Yeah. You basically are just told, well, you got YouTube or, you know, you could basically, there's almost nothing you can do with it. And I, it always, I was always convinced that there needs, someone needs to innovate this model and that, uh, you know, in the era of, of streaming, there ought to be a way, a, a, as we like to say, if an artistic painter can set the price for their work, mm -hmm. why shouldn't filmmakers be able to set the price for their work? Yeah. And the streaming age has allowed that, the, the, that technology has, it now allows this kind of innovation. And so we started Vitafair, which is, 
you know, it, it's, a, it's a double entendre. It means both living in fairness, vida fair, and it also means video affair, <laughs> video affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's vidafair, V-I-D-A-F-A-I-R. And, that's, uh, and that basically is a way to introduce fairness for the filmmakers to set their own streaming prices, and it can, including micropayments. So short films have no way to really be marketed or made. You no know, one can monetize them very much. Mm-hmm. Until now, mm-hmm. and but you can include micropayments, any price point that the filmmaker th- makes sense to them. Some films have a lo- huge budget. Other films have tiny budgets. Some films are very long epics. Others are very short. Why should we in the bis- be in the business of, of price setting yeah. for the, only the filmmaker who knows what went into it? So the filmmaker can, can set that streaming price and offer to the public and that's what Vitafair does. Well, that's what I like about you guys. I, there's this weird... I I don't want to say we've been sort of brainwashed, but there's this whole, I think it stems from, like you go further back and you look at like Napster, right? You look at the music thing and and like music should be free, content should be free. Um, And so the internet has always been this place where you just put your shit up for free and then you can watch all this stuff. And then there are companies like YouTube, which essentially became a massive company because they were kind of looking the other way on copyright issues for quite some time. That's true. You know what I mean? Um, And so now it's, you know, make a short film and put it up on YouTube. And you're like, you're just giving YouTube free content. (laughs) Like it's ultimately, and you're, I'm not saying that, you know, as a young filmmaker, you're going to get the same eyes that, uh, you know, uh, larger stuff would get or more established filmmaker would get on, on YouTube. But at the same token, you're still giving them hours and hours of streaming content that may be successful, may end up being something huge. Um, And so I've never believed in just giving it away, even as a filmmaker myself. Uh, I think you and I have talked about this offline. My two short films, I just don't upload them to YouTube. If you're going to want to watch my short films, you have to write to me directly and tell me your three favorite horror movies, and then I'll send you a link. Because because <laughs> that's so cool. Well, yeah, yeah, because it's more it's it's you feel more engrossed as someone that wants to see it. I'm actually sorting through all of the the mindless sort of click throughs where people are like they don't give a fuck about it, and so everybody that watches it wants to physically see it and wants to interact and wants to give back feedback. So I I really do believe that, and I think that with a lot of younger filmmakers, it's just about having the confidence in your own work and having the confidence and the ability to understand that your time is money. Oftentimes it costs money for you to make that thing. Like, like, uh, you know, for me to make 12 KM, which was my short proof of concept, it was, I'm not going to give you the guys the exact number, but it was over 20 grand to make that piece. And, sure. and so at the end of the day, like, what am I, am I just burning that cash? <laughs> of course. This is, so, so here's my analogy. So, Mike, I gotta, I'm, I'm going to give you a job offer. You, you, you know, I, you're, you're like, great. Yeah. Okay, what's the job? I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you a job. Here's the job. Uh, I run this um, newspaper. And I want you to be a writer every day. You're going to write content every day for my newspaper. Oh, okay. That's a good job. And so then what's, and then, and then you're going to sell ads against the column in the newspaper so that they'll be, yeah, that's right. I'll make money from ads I'm going to put in the newspaper sure. right next to your column. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, okay. I'll be a writer. That sounds like fun. How much do I get paid to be a writer? I'm like, oh, nothing. You're going to write for free every day for my newspaper and I'm going to sell ads yep. so that I make money next to your content. 
Yeah. And, and, and social media is kind of like people saying, okay, good. I'll take that deal. Yep. A, a salary of zero to create content for you to sell ads. Sure. Sign me up. It's crazy. like, it's that's crazy. like the dumbest deal, It's crazy. you know? And of course there are some people that have figured out ways to monetize it through sponsorships and other things like that. Yeah. But most don't. And that's my dogs uh, chewing the dog toy. <laughs> but uh, most, uh, most don't find a way to monetize it. And it's, it's, uh, and so, yeah, I think there's got to be a better way. Well, I think the, the people, I think everybody wants, I don't think people get into this business not to make money. I don't think people get into this business to live a life of like a struggling poor artist. Like, I think that the, the dream that folks have when they look at this stuff from the outside, because movies are very shiny, glossy things. And the marketing behind being a filmmaker is put through f filtration. It's a very shiny thing as well. Um, and oh, so, yeah. You'll be a star. Exactly. Yeah, it feeds the ego. Exactly. Sure. So that ego feed like basically blinds a lot of folks. Uh, and I think there's a big thing with uh, imposter syndrome with, with many people to do this, where they are like, do I deserve this? Am I really a filmmaker? What's it mean to be a filmmaker? And yeah. And, oh, right. uh, you know, I, I, I think it just takes, and I try to say this on the show all the time. I think it takes people that are in front of us, people that are successful to look back and go, I spent this many years getting fucking ripped off. I spent, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this many years, uh, giving away my shit and the bad contracts that I've signed and all that kind of stuff. And you go, Oh, right. Because right. you, you want to sort of save the younger folks from that. And, the ability that we have now to sort of have control over our content. If you're a content creator, you have control over it. Like um, I own this podcast. I have control over what I do, how I put it out. I have control sure. over who I talk to with sponsorships, all that stuff, because it's my show. It's my intellectual property at this point. Uh, you really have to learn to respect that and appreciate that because ultimately that's all we have as creators. Yes. You know? Right. And that's what ultimately gives it value. Mm -hmm. it, it's not because, you know, some sort of uh, machine created some sort of, uh, you know, program that has some length, you know, that was, a you know, built by a ro AI robot or something. It has a character. It has soul. It has your imprimatur. And th those that's where the value comes. Yeah. 100%, dude. And, and so then if you understand that, I don't think, I think there's something about being realistic. I think that if you're a young filmmaker and you start to build an audience, and and let's be honest, the beginning starts, the beginning stages of your audience are your family, you know what I mean? It's sure. Your mom and dad and all that stuff, and then your friends, and then it sort of blows up from there and it goes a little bit further. Um, once you hit a certain point in your filmmaking career, you start to understand that there's value. If people want to see more work from you, then ask them if they'd like to pay for it. Would you like to support us? Would you like to support what it is that's happening here? And they go, yeah. And you go, would you, and, and just test it, test the water. Like, would you pay five bucks to watch this thing every month? Would you pay 20 bucks to watch this thing every month? You'll, you'll figure it out. If you, if you actually do a little question and answer with, with the folks that you're with and just start to charge for your content. Sure. It, because then it starts. Well, what, to what Vitafair does is we don't uh, we don't believe in a subscription model where you have to generate something every month or every week. And plus, we feel that a lot of people will you'll leave out a lot of potential audience who 
don't want to subscribe to yet another thing. You know, I've already got yeah. the Netflix, I've already got the Amazon Prime, and you know, now I just got the Hulu or I got the you know HBO or whatever. Like, oh, yet another. Okay, no, I'm just not going to subscribe. Whereas our model says it's a one-time payment, and you can pay basically once to try some sort of content maybe from someone you've never heard of. You'd never think to subscribe to this person you haven't heard of very much. Maybe you just got you know you read one thing about them, mm. but try it once and I pay 50 cents or I pay a dollar 50 or I pay whatever amount they set, but it's only a dollar 50. All right. I had a dollar 50. Um, you know, I could have, you know, I could have ordered fewer, you know, appetizers in my <laughs> meal and had saved a lot more than a dollar. But like it's a low enough price. So you think, Oh, it's a one-time thing of that amount. That's small enough. Why not try it? Yeah. Yeah. I, it makes sense to me. It really does. I think that, at the end of the, at the end of the day, here's why I like what you guys are doing is is that you're giving power back to the creators. And one of the things that we don't get trained on when we're filmmakers, you go to film school, is they they don't train you how to deal with the gatekeepers. And most of our job is gatekeepers. It's like either you. That's an interesting observation. It's absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah. like we're trying to convince. Uh, executives at a studio to greenlight a project. We're trying to convince, um, you know, a certain network to pick up our stuff and, uh, and distribute our stuff. There are gatekeepers and there are these folks that are in between and, and that's what they do. They make the, I, I'm not saying that they're all, you know, you know, evil fucking corporations, but they, they make money off of creators and that's, that's essentially it. And so, um, there are some models out there and the podcast world is a prime example of that. Like you look at like the Joe Rogans, you look at like the Tom Segura's, um, these folks jumped on early with podcasting and they really went with it. Uh, the Mark Marins, um, and they retained all of their rights for this stuff. And now, um, they figured out, uh, money models, like business models that pay for stuff and they make more money than they ever did or ever would at a major network or any other spot. And they own everything and they're their own bosses and they don't have to go to the gatekeepers for permission. Can I do this this week? Or can I do that? What are our, what are our sponsors going to think about this? You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. There, there's, there's uh there's cancellation insurance. Yes. In other words, speaking of Rogan, right. Yes. So, yes. you know, Right. And and I think there will always be gatekeepers because there will always be big brands that are super famous. And those big brands will probably benefit from certain services a gatekeeper could provide. If you're already Dave Chappelle or something like that, then you have, you know, mm -hmm. then yes, you get on these networks and, you know, you, you're big enough that you have a different form of cancellation insurance. You're just big enough, you know, so. But uh, so I think there will always be gatekeepers. The, the, the question isn't whether gatekeepers should be go away completely. The question is, should there be another model in this age? Uh, and and I think, you know, and obviously, you know, what's the downside? What's the downside of offering people an alternate monetization it's true. path for their work? That's true. That's true. And, you know, going through that process and setting your own prices and being involved with that stuff strangely actually connects you closer to your audience. And so then you start to understand what it is that your audience is reacting to. You start to really kind of process these things, um, which, you know, I've done over the years. And, and so then you you know, um, you know, whether or not your content or whether or not your new idea is going to like, I don't want to say whether or not it's going to be successful, but you, you get sort of an idea of like what your audience is going to react to. And then it, you mentioned, you know, Chappelle with like his numbers. 
I mean, he built an audience. You have to build an audience as as a right. filmmaker. You you just do. Audience is power. Audience is is uh, the reason why we do all this stuff. Even if you're just trying to get people to laugh, you need the fucking audience to get people to laugh. And so, you know, I I like the idea of setting your own prices. I like the idea of what you guys do, as opposed to like going to like a larger streaming. Uh, platform where you're dealing with algorithms, you're dealing with, oh, you need to post 15 minutes every every day of this week in order for the algorithms to show up. Uh, right. you, you know, like posting on certain social media platforms, I've got, what, like 40-something thousand followers and I'll do a post and it will only go out to 1,500. And it's like, why the fuck does it not go out to 40,000 followers? Like, right. the, then there are these gains that happen inside. Well, if you want to pay to boost your post and and then they're making cash off of you as the creator uh, out of your pocket, not let alone the content that you create that people go to their website to watch the advertising on. So it's it's very easy to fall into these pitfalls where, especially if you're creating content for some of the larger ones, um, that becomes your full-time fucking job where you're like, oh my God, I have to make sure that my intro for the show is at least 15 minutes long in order for it to register. So when you watch these uh, lens videos or unboxing videos and you're like, why is it so fucking long? Why is this guy rambling at the beginning? He's doing that so that it shows up on the algorithm and so that, uh, his, right. so that his fans will see it. And so there's a lot of this behind the scenes stuff that happens um, that starts to shape you creatively. It starts to shape the kind of work you do and how it's put together, which is interesting, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a, so take take Amazon Prime Video Direct, for example. They have all kinds of rules that you've got to follow that, you know, I mean, you, you need some rules, I think, for any platform, but I mean, a rule like you have to have every project closed captioned, otherwise they won't accept it. Well, oh, yeah. okay, I, I don't feel like Vitafair needs that rule. You know, like you just, <laughs> do you need, you know, like, sure if you want to, but like, uh, so, uh, I think there, I think, I think there need to be, yeah, there need to be all, I mean, I mean as I understand, Amazon prime video direct isn't even accepting shorts at all. Yeah. That's another rule. You yeah. can't be, you can't be a short film yeah. uh, to be on their platform. Well, Which, that just sounds crazy to me. Yeah. It's we. It's because they're trying to build, it seems like it's because they're trying to build, uh, the, the impression of who they are. You know what I mean? Like we don't do fucking shorts, like cause shorts just seem cheap to folks. And I, I don't get that. I don't understand why there isn't a shorts program on Netflix. I don't understand why they do that. I, mean, I, I know. I, I long wondered why there wasn't even a whole cable channel that was nothing but that. Yeah. You know, that was just dedicated. That seems to me it'd be useful. There's uh, you know, there would be an audience for it. It's a, a shorter investment of time. You, uh, you know, this, well, you know, one of the, one of the fun things we've done on Vidafair is had, had nights locally in New York where a bunch of people just watch a bunch of shorts and, and we get to talk about each one at the end. It's kind of like a sort of unofficial sort of informal film festival, like just, you know, just watching these completely different projects and, you know, so shorts are fun. So why, why would, why would the kind of big tech gatekeepers be anti short film? It doesn't make any sense. I don't get it either. I don't really get it either. Um, well, speaking of film festival stuff, because you guys are doing a film festival now too, right? That, well, that that's right. Point? We decided, you know, if the idea of a festival means to celebrate something, you can celebrate excellence in filmmaking. That's that's a good thing to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Why not actually also celebrate monetization on the part of the free the freedom of a filmmaker to monetize their own work, set their own price? Uh, it, it's 
there's an advantage in doing this kind of uh, philosophically in that just to get people to start thinking about, well, what price would they set for said project? Uh, Because a lot of filmmakers have never thought about that. And some actually might feel embarrassed about the idea of setting a low price because Mm -hmm. it might imply that it's, you know, not a good quality piece of work. But in fact, if setting a low price creates more ultimate overall revenue, then maybe it's really smart to set a low price. (laughs) And that this kind of thinking has not been something that's been happening in the independent film world that much. And because we've empowered, because vitafair.com has empowered micropayment pricing models, we think people should be starting to consider this idea of what price would make the most sense for a particular project. What price should they set? So we want to celebrate that along with quality filmmaking and so like well why not have a festival then and it's a uh, it's you know it's an online festival we also have a brick and mortar event in austin mm-hmm. on a june 7th a kind of a gala awards and screening uh at the austin film society cinema so on june 7th but cool uh yeah so that's the idea of a festival it's like let's celebrate making money also <laughs> like why why should that not be <laughs> worthy of also something people think is a good thing, which should be celebrated. Although my dog is not celebrating right now. He's crying uh, <laughs> like the hound that he is. But uh, but, but the filmmaker should celebrate. Yeah, no, because it's, it, it's wild because there's a piece of us. It's just this training. It, there's a piece of me that's like, I'll monetize. And, and as soon as you start talking about money as a filmmaker artist, it's like sometimes it feels just a little like sleazy. And sometimes you're like, oh, what does that mean? Yes. But, it's but, greed. It's Gordon Gecko, right? It's like, right. oh, you're greedy. Right. You, you want money? Right. Yeah, well, yeah, what? everyone, they, did you eat today? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I ate today. What did, did they give you the food for free? Yeah. Oh, they didn't? Yeah. Okay. Well, I was just talking about this because this, this also filters through with film. I don't know what it is, but it filters through with filmmakers into the ad world, in the advertising world. And when you're a director in the ad world where you're like, I don't know if I'm worth this and I don't know how much I should charge. And there's, there's sort of, I don't want to say, yeah, I'm going to say it. There's like a praying that happens with these larger companies that understand that they understand that filmmakers are like young filmmakers are kind of uh, insecure about their work. And so they kind of use that to their own, they manipulate them to their own, to their own needs. And they go, Oh, well, you know, if you don't do this, we've paid this other filmmaker a thousand dollars to do this project that would cost about 35 grand to do. Um, but you know, you should be feel fortunate to do this. And that's a big thing that comes in our business where, uh, congratulations, you've got the job. That's your payment is that you got the job. You shouldn't be paid. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's not unlike the music industry where like the, the little band, uh, you know, signs, a de- you know, like Creedence Clearwater Revival, you know, sure. these signs a deal that gives away all of their rights to their songs for no- essentially nothing, you know, and they're just young and hungry and they don't know any better. And, um, yeah. for sure that goes on, you know, I, I mean, I have some sympathy because to some extent, these companies, they have to rely on the small percentage of giant hits sure. to pay for all of their corporate offices and all of those, you know, people who get around salary and all the, you know, essentially the middlemen and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, but so that's, it's not that they're motivated, but you know, they, I, I understand that ratio mm-hmm. can be, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get a hit film. And so you have to, maybe you have to pay for some, you know, some, some clunkers before you get the, 
the mm-hmm. good one, but mm-hmm. but that but that that's fine. I, that I don't even have. I'm not even mad at them. I just I just think there could be an alternate route for filmmakers to set their own prices, and then because also unlike never before, people have social media to advertise their own work. Yeah, it's not like you've got to rely on some sort of madman office in an ad firm somewhere. The hires you know that big companies use to advertise you know, laundry surgeon or something to advertise <laughs> your little film that you've decided to set a price for. No, you can advertise it on Twitter easily yourself. You can advertise it on, on Google search and on Facebook and on Instagram and also through your own website and through email blasts and through podcasts and through all kinds of new ways. Yep. So if you can mo- set a price to, for your own work to monetize it, and now you can also advertise that link that goes right to your work for people to pay a small, tiny amount that's a one-time fee ever to watch it. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I just, it seems to me that that, ought, that, that needed to happen, that, that innovation needed to happen. So it's, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with you. You know, yeah, that's I my agree. rant. That. <laughs> Dude, it's a good one. It's a good one, man. I agree with you. Like it, now that, I mean, CAA and all these giant uh, talent agencies are signing people with Instagram accounts that have millions of, of followers on Instagram. So the power for advertising has really fallen back in the hands of uh, creators to a certain extent. And I, I think that we just need to, I guess my point in all the rants that I've had so far in this episode is that you just have to change your mentality. I think that what you're offering, offering Bob, with uh, Vitafair is a very powerful tool. And what I'm trying to do on today's episode is convince, <laughs> convince, like right. uh, uh, the sort of a beaten down community of folks that never really value their work or their time, or are trying to find the confidence to value the work and their time, to to start thinking differently. And, uh, you know, whenever someone said to me as a filmmaker, you need to start thinking as a businessman, I'm like, well, that's why I did filmmaking. I don't want to be a fucking businessman. Like, I get that. I get, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I get that mentality. But you, so al- you also, I said this to somebody that wrote to me recently, and they were talking about, you know, how much should I charge for uh, my work as a commercial director? And I said, uh, well, you need to charge this amount. And they go, well, how do you find the confidence to do that? And I go, the first time that you have to do end of the year taxes and you talk to your accountant (laughs) and that is the amount of money you made for your fucking whole year. That is how much money you made. Like you have to learn your lesson at that point. That's when you learn your lesson and go, I could barely pay rent. I'm not paying for rent. I'm barely paying for anything right now. My, My parents paid for my entire camera package. And that's the only reason why I have a camera package that I'm out there shooting for free with. Um, you have to value your work because our work is, it's the major export of the U S our work is what makes money like advertising and visuals. We live in a visual medium world right now. And so your work will make a lot of money, can make a lot of money. And just, you have to, you have to start thinking that way, you know? Yeah. And you think of all the other ways people have, you know, monetization methods that have changed because of the internet recently. You know, if, if, you know, Uber is a way for an ordinary person with a car to monetize their own car and, and Airbnb is an ordinary person's way to monetize their own home can be a hotel Mm -hmm. like this. Why, why shouldn't these innovations extend to 
monetizing creative content, which is exploding, by yeah. the way. Yeah. And so yeah. it's just to me, it's another one of those. It's in the same way that in the same way that Airbnb lets someone set their own price for their own home to rent it. And if they set the price too high, well, guess what? Probably no one will show up, you know? Sure. But if they have if they if they have a good place to rent and they set the price reasonably, then they'll probably make money. And why should some third party be there? To tell them, well, no, we're going to set the rate for your place. We, we, we put our, you know, your place into our square footage algorithm and our, you know, <laughs> location algorithm, and we will decide for you how much you will get for this place that you're going to rent out. Like, that's, nobody wants that. You know, <laughs> once, you actually, once you have an Airbnb, no one wants to go to a system where some gatekeeper tells you how much to charge for that, the rental of your, of your home. Yeah. You know, so similarly to me, that's, that's, that's what this is. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Well, to get back to the film festival, so what? what is, you're talking about uh, using it to celebrate monetization, to do all that stuff. What's the experience going to be like for filmmakers at your film festival? Well, it's so it's uh, there's a film freeway link. Uh, maybe you can put it in the description of this. Uh, sure. People can use to, like other film festivals, to submit content. It's, it's similar in many ways in that you submit the content, you give the title, you give the description, you upload a thumbnail. Uh, the one big difference with ours is you also say the price you want to make for each person that watches it online. So that's part of the submission process of this film festival. Hmm. And so then if you're accepted, then you then in a special area of our website that we'll be promoting, you uh, have a, a, your film and you have a link to it and you can send the link to anyone you want. And you can get people to watch it. And if you, as long as you make over $20, which is our th threshold, so we don't get killed by finan financial transaction costs, then you can get the money that you've decided to charge per screening, per rental of your, of your film. And so that, that's, that's how it works. It's, uh, it's, you, you upload it like most other festival submissions, except you also just get the price that you've decided you want to charge for people to rent it. And I would say, okay, so then the difference between doing it through the film festival and then just signing up for an account of Vidifair and going through that process is that you guys are going to advertise the hell out of the film festival? Is that what's going to happen? A couple of differences. One is that uh, we, we're we going to be giving awards, for example. So the film festival submissions are the only ones considered for the film festival awards. Mm -hmm. uh, also, we will... Uh, have a, a live screening of the winners, for example, like I said, in Austin on June 9th. Also, yes, we'll be doing special promotions for the film uh, festival part. So it will be judged. There will be awards. Uh, there will be promotions that are specific to the film festival. But it's it, it, there's, a, there's a lot more in common that it has with the You can also just upload a regular, if you don't want, uh, if you, you know, if you, if you only want to spend $6, to monetize a film for a year mm -hmm. and you don't want to be considered for an award and you don't want to be considered for the <laughs> screening, then just you can upload it to the regular Vitafair platform and that could happen right now. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about the differences of it because film festivals, film festivals are so tough from being a creative and being someone that has been to film festivals. And especially if you're doing shorts, um, the problem that I've always had going the traditional route with film festivals with shorts is that, um, you know, it's not like I've told, I've said this on other episodes. It's not like, um, the, uh, creatives from all these production companies, like, it's not like the producers from, you know, Atomic Monster are going to the shorts program at that film festival. Like, right. uh, 
the people that are buying things or the people that are picking up folks uh, are going to film festivals to see the features. That's the purpose. And they send people there to see the feature films. And so if you get programmed in a regular film festival, the unfortunate side effect is that the shorts program always shows opposite some big feature that's happening. So <laughs> this is an interesting, I never th thought of that way to put it before. The, the way I think of it is that the value is that, well, apart from the laurels, you could put on your website or something. Sure. If you win. But uh, then there's the other part of just networking, you know, because you're hoping you meet other people there 100%. who are also kind of on the way up, you yep. know, hundred percent. And yeah, so there's that part of it, but I, I do know what you mean. I, th I think I told you before on the phone, there was this, there's this guy I met who flew from New Zealand to Philadelphia because he'd been accepted in this film festival. And he thought, wow, it's, I'm, I'm one step away from Hollywood. This is a major American city. He flies from New Auckland, New Zealand to Philadelphia, and he's watching this film with two other people in a gym, in basically the yoga room of a gym, which is where one of their screening, one of their five simultaneous screening locations was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so film festivals can also be a big ripoff. Big time. And, and like, like you said, I agree with you. It's networking. So the if you're a short film director and you get into a, a festival, understand that uh, go there and meet the other filmmakers and meet people that will become your peers and that you can work with as things progress for you. But other than that, and I think I've spent time talking to people at production companies to find folks. I got found by production companies for my movies that are in development right now. Uh, because of my shorts and my proof of concepts. And they found my work through the internet. And they have staff on the internet that scours the internet, looks for short film stuff that's interesting, looks for short film stuff that's doing well, um, like uh, Vimeo staff picks and all that kind of stuff. It, I, it's a benefit for you if you have a short film that they're able to find that you've monetized. So that you're able to say to a production company, hey, um, this is a short film that I made that I monetized on the internet. I made, you know, I did really well with it. I made $10,000 just on a short film um, that paid for the entire film. They'd be impressed by that. They'd go, oh, shit, there's an audience that actually wants to put money down. It isn't the sure. same brainless audience that is like swiping left on shit. Sure. Like, that, that means something. You're adding value to your work and you're proving to these folks if that's the route that you want to take, if you want to ultimately direct uh, for studios and, and do that stuff, you have to go through those gate, gatekeepers. But at the same token, you're proving to them like, hey, my work is worth something. I'm building an yeah. audience that is worth something. So sure, every asshole's got a fucking iPhone out there. Everybody could shoot a beautiful image if they just go out and, and get their mom and dad to put down on the new red camera. But I can create a narrative that an audience wants to, to pay for. And sure. that's value. I'm glad you brought that up because someone, someone gave us feedback and said, well, if this is an online film festival, do you have a maximum number of people who can watch the film so that distributors won't feel that this film is already out there. And, and, and the answer is, well, no, we don't have a maximum number of people who can watch it. But as the filmmaker on Vitafair, you can always hit a switch to make it inactive anytime you want. You can turn it off. Mm -hmm. And since we have a view count utility, it's complete transparency. So if, 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 a, if a film is doing, you know, so great, is really, really well and getting tons and tons of view count, uh, you know, in a short period of time, nothing stops a filmmaker from from flipping that off and saying, and then using that to show basically a proof of concept to 
a big time distributor. People, you know, always want, they're kind of dreaming for the home run, you know, like that a big time distributor will pick them up. And so, uh, I think that, yeah, if you're, if you're, if your film on Vitifair got, I don't know, 10,000 views or something, uh, if I were a distributor and I saw that and it was over a short period of time, I would be more likely to pick up that film rather than think, oh, it's already out there. This film, you know, there's no reason to, to, to sign it. it, it do you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's interesting that you just said that because I was also going down another rabbit hole in my head. And I don't know if I've said this on the show, but I'm going to, I've done enough documentary work and feature film documentary work. And I've done documentaries that have been picked up and distributed by uh, major networks. And I think that uh, a misconception that a lot of us have as filmmakers is that if I can get onto one of these major networks, I'll front all the cash for my doc. I'll put it all together. um, And uh, then once I show them what the budget was for this, they'll at least pay for the budget and I'll make a profit on it. It's not true. I'm not going to say what specific networks they are, but for a feature, it's twice now. For a feature film doc, they don't pay more than $30,000. And hmm. so when you think about that and you price that are out- Are you talking about cable, basic cable networks? I'm talking about like advanced networks. Like um, let, let's say it was uh, like an HBO or Showtime or Stars or something like that. Okay, a, pay, a paid uh, yes. subscription, uh, what used to be called cable network. Which yes. is now streaming at this point too. So right. all of them, of course. Yeah, so like they haven't paid more than 30 grand. And, and if you hear, uh, and these are for two separate, completely separate films. And, right. and if you, you hear a successful him. At one point, I think a lot of documentarians were like, I'll make like a hundred grand on it. It's like, yeah, right. And so then right. you're you're making like under 50 grand on something that you probably spent that money, if not more on the production of the damn thing. And on top of it, oftentimes in order to get those deals to happen, you have to be with a specific type of gatekeeper, whether it's an agent or a manager or somebody else. And so each one of those folks are taking 10%. So 10%, 10%. They get a cut. And plus, you know, not to mention a year of your time, if not more, like, you know, so the cartel movie I did took me two and a half years to make it. And I was doing other things at the time too, but it's a lot of time, a lot of time you put in for that. Yeah. So yes, as as that piece gets chopped down lower and lower, it's, you also have to imagine how many of those you could produce in one year, in other words, to make a salary that you could live on. Sure. And so like a lot of these places look for exclusivity, but exclusivity specific to the time that they're doing it. So like you may sign a deal with one of these larger networks for like three months, a three month exclusive, or maybe a half year exclusive. So within that time period, it has to be exclusive to them. But Uh, what a lot of filmmakers are doing to help supplement their income when they do that is that they're trying to retain a theatrical run. They're tr- they're trying to retain sh- like smaller screenings, smaller event mm-hmm. screenings to do that. I think you could do the same thing with a company like Vitafair, where you know that if you get on one of these major networks, it's good for you as far as publicity is concerned, because then you get to have all their advertising funds and be in their lineup and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, unless you get lost in a fucking queue, which is a whole other story. But um, in the interim, you could either start monetizing it immediately and say to yourself, I'm not going to go to a, a huge audience. I'm going to cap it at a certain point, but I got to start making some of this cash back that I borrowed from my mom, from my dad, from my uncle and my aunt to make this fucking thing happen. So I'll run a short run of it first, and then I'll cancel it once we uh, pitch or we go to one of these larger networks. And then I'll, after that period of time in which I get a small chunk chump change from them, then at the back end, I'll monetize it and I'll make it. Because 
Uh, a lot of these, like we've run through the cycle with these docs where folks miss it on the major networks. And then the, the, the networks will talk about it and advertise it. But then after it's gone, I will get emails and they're like, where can we see this fucking thing? And have yes. thing? Are, you guys yes. sell, are you guys selling DVDs? Like, it's like, who the fuck buys DVDs or Blu-rays anymore? And so, yes. so then at that point, if you have something like this, like a Vitafair, where you can then monetize your stuff, you can jack your price. Uh, initially, your Vitafair could have been, you know, $5 a screener. But after you've been on a, a network or, or you've sold it, it's up to 25 bucks a screener. And people will sure pay can. because of that. Sure can. You know? Yeah, that's that's the flexibility. You know, was, I, I created a company after having been a filmmaker first. <laughs> so in other words, <laughs> yeah. I don't think a lot of these streaming companies are like me in that regard. You know, I would... I was there sitting in those festivals and, you know, trying to contact publicists and trying, you know, I was, so yeah, I, I, I think that there is, if you, if you create a system that, you know, helps other people be, be more free and flexible in their choices and do what they want that because they all have different priorities in different situations and you allow them to, uh, you know, to the extent as much as possible, you know, make up their own rules about when, when they turn on the monetization and when they turn it off and how long, you know, and, and whether, at what price you end up creating value for others. And that's the way to be successful, whether this or any other industry, yeah. you create, you, you create a value that someone else says, Oh, well that would actually solve a problem. Okay. And so then that's, that's a good sort of way to think about how to be successful. It's good advice. Um, well, we're sort of hitting that point, Bob. Where uh, I think we're hitting the end of this episode, and it's it's become a very sort of uh, dense episode with a lot to think about and a lot to learn from, uh, as far as filmmakers are concerned. And uh, I know I let out a lot of stuff. So, so like, you know, uh, I've, Mike, I've never been called dense in such a flattering way before. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> uh well dude it's been great man and, and uh we appreciate i'm full like a hundred percent uh honest with my audience and my listeners you guys are a sponsor of the show um and uh we completely appreciate you guys sponsoring us and supporting us for this and and uh like i said to you when we first talked i don't just go with any sponsor i go with companies and people that i think are doing something interesting and something that i would potentially use and and I think something that will change the way uh, the younger folks that are listening to the show and even the old veterans that are still swimming and floundering and trying to figure out their shit. Um, there's, we try to offer the tools to everybody that, that might make it better for you. And so I think you well, guys no, are I, I, I sensed that authenticity and sincerity on the part of your production as well. So I, uh, you know, so right back at you. And, and let me just, let me just uh, you know, remind you of something. Hmm. Here's this idea. It's the in love with the in love with the process podcast t-shirt. That is a winner. It's a winner. Get some merch going, man. There it is. Today's episode. If you noticed, you noticed that I didn't do other ad reads uh, on today's episode. I wanted this one to be about uh, Vitafair. Um, and uh, like I said, during the episode, they are a sponsor of the show. Um, but when I talked to Bob, when him and I talked about uh, setting this thing up, I was fascinated with what he did. I was fascinated with his career and I was also interested 
um, with uh, why he was starting Vitifair and what the purpose of it is, because you're, don't you feel this way? You're constantly sort of sifting your way through with a cynical eye, hopefully, with a cynical eye through all like these different companies and these different things that come up. And you're like, well, what's your fucking motivation, right? Are you just some like big rich guy that uh, bought out some other spot and you have uh, uh, two empty docks that you need to put new boats in? You know what I mean? And so most of the time I feel that way. And you've heard me have other sponsors on the show and we've talked about that, especially in the movie business. I feel like there's a lot of companies that prey on us insecure little filmmakers. Um, but I really didn't get that sense from these guys. And so I wanted Bob to come on, tell a story, and tell you guys why he started, and I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we let out a lot. I let a lot of things out of the bag on today's episode. Um, and uh, you guys have been always asking me about distribution and distribution models. I'll try to do some more episodes about that. Let me know if you want more. Send me a message on Instagram at Mike Petchy or send me a message at the podcast and love with the process pod on Instagram and let me know. Um, is there someone that you want me to get on the show? Should we uh, dig deeper into distribution? Should we dig deeper into that angle? Um, I have limited experience as a filmmaker and I've shared a lot of my experiences with you guys. Um, but uh, I have a lot to learn. I'm incredibly fascinated by it. And it seems like this business is consistently shifting at such a high speed, like a rapid rate where by the time a film comes out, someone went through some sort of model to get that out. That model is now extinct. It's so fucking quick. It's crazy. Um, and I'm a big advocate of, uh, you know, owning your own stuff. And I think this is something that I learned young as a photographer um, before the photography industry went to shit. Uh, was, you know, photographers, when they started, would own all of their photos you would then license out your photos. So you wouldn't just get paid to go in and like spray and pray, you know, shoot a thousand shots and someone hands you 1500 bucks. And then they now have a thousand shots that they can use in, per in perpetuity on whatever they want. Uh, the way you're supposed to do it, um, the way that it was done prior to sort of like this insecurity prey thing that's been going on with businesses is uh, you go and you do a shoot they license, they pay for the shoot, and then they license a certain amount of images for certain outputs, right? So you'd license it for commercial outputs. Is it going on a billboard? Is it going on buses? Is it going on a flyer? Um, and then when you're going through that process of putting your price together, if you're smart, you're understanding who this company is and what they do, right? And understand where they make their money. And so if they're a company that is a, a, like a a new starting company that doesn't have a client base yet, then you can price your stuff adequately for that with an understanding that the licensing only lasts for a year or two years or three years, right? Because it helps you stay employed. It gives you uh, passive income, which we need as artists because uh, as a freelancer, you're not getting a job every week. You're not getting a job every month. You can go, you know, five, six months. You can go two years with COVID with no work. Um, and uh, what you have to change your mindset on things where folks are just like paid by the hour. I'm just getting paid by the hour. That's not necessarily what's happening. When you charge for a gig and you put together your price, you're paying for the time that it took you to research and development and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, I was just having a conversation, uh, with my buddy the other night, we went out for beers and we were talking about directing 
and we were talking about directors that commercial directors that get to a point where they could start charging you know twenty thousand a day for a shoot right and uh you know just throwing that money at you i could hear the young folks listening to the show going wow that's a lot of money <laughs> now it's not actually let's say you're going to do a, a commercial and that you charge 20 grand for your shoot days on that ad maybe it's one day maybe it's two days um, you're essentially charging for your shoot day, but you're also charging for the three months, the treatment writing, the multiple meetings, the back and forths, the casting sessions, all those bits and pieces that you don't get paid for. Right? Think about it. So 20 grand for three months. Not a bad deal still, but it's reasonable at that point. It makes sense. And that's full fucking commitment from you, as you all know. The amount of energy and effort that it takes to make a commercial, the amount of energy and effort it takes to make a movie. And so you really need to process this time. You really need to, we need to break away from the brainwashing that has happened since the creation of the internet for creatives, where everything on the internet should be free. We need to break out of the Napster way of thinking, where everybody... Shit should be free. Well, that's because we were fucking stealing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were stealing music. When YouTube started, you, people were putting up copywritten material and they were using some sort of bullshit legal jargon to get away with it for quite some time to, until they couldn't get away with it anymore. I don't know if you guys remember that shift that happened when the YouTube started where suddenly they're like, okay, you're not allowed to put up copywritten material, but we have enough people that now subscribe to our website that we can then, we've built an audience that we can then now go shift towards, well, here's how you upload your creative content. And now we make enough money on all the advertisements that we did so that we can approach some like bigger creators uh, to bring in traffic and to garnish traffic and go through this process. That's the business model that they had. And so the idea of just throwing your content on a platform that may pay you, you know, 0. 0.00005 on a, on a cent per thousand views or whatever the fuck it is, um, you're giving away your content and you're, you're filling their queue with the content that they need to keep the mindless masses tuned in. And there are a bunch of ways if you have the, if you have the audience, there's a bunch of ways that you can monetize that stuff, but then you have to follow the rules of that service. Like, uh, you're only allowed to post this kind of content. If you say this kind of content, then you're not going to be seen by a huge group of folks or, uh, the only way your entire audience is even going to see that you posted something new is if you post three things this week that are at least 15 minutes long because they need content. So they're going to set these rules into place that force you to continue to upload stuff. And then you've becoming a content creator for that company. It's like secondhand, you've now become a content creator for that company without getting paid for it. It's crazy. Rethink about that stuff. Definitely do. As you start to put your shit together, think about it. And who should be making money on your work? You should. And we're not talking about making Lambo cash, but if you're smart, maybe that's your move. But you should at least be getting the money back that you invested in it. Right? Yeah. I'm saying this to myself as I talk into this microphone. If this microphone went back in time, which I wish it did, 
I would be saying this to Mike pre-2010. Yeah. Because maybe I'd be in a different place right now. You know? So anyway, hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, lots more episodes on the way. Regular episode will be back next Tuesday. You guys know I'm here. And for all the new followers, thanks for showing up. Um, what episode are we at now? I think we're almost at 180, right? Wow, it's crazy. Um, the numbers have been killing it, by the way. You guys are telling your friends about the show. It shows. We had a record-breaking week last week for listeners on the show, which is really great. Um, two good episodes last week that were put out with uh, Lexi Luna. Our porn star episode did really well, of course. Um, and our musician showcase uh, with Russell Nash did really well as, as well. Well as well, Michael. Um, so thank you. And if you guys are new and you're feeling a little lost and you're like, where do I start? And there's so many episodes. Do I go back to episode one, which a lot of you do, which is crazy to me. I love it. Um, but you can go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. I've curated all the episodes there by subject material. I also have a top 20, top 25 episodes up there. Uh, so it's a great way in. Head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. Check it all out. I've got links for sponsors. I've got uh, supplemental materials per episode up there on their own specific pages. So trailers from the filmmakers, behind the scenes photos, sketches, storyboards, like all sorts of really great stuff. Inlovewiththeprocess.com. That's it. I'm out of here. Thanks for listening.